Let us pray. So, Father, we in this season of Advent look forward with expectation to that day when Christ our Lord indeed does return in the fullness of his reign. When we see our true Messiah. And even now, Father, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus and that the light of his countenance would purify us and renew us and strengthen us and draw us more fully into your presence. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts now be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated, everyone. So good to see all of you here this morning. And this has been another wonderful weekend at All Saints Church. Friday night, we had a wonderful time with the drive through Living Nativity, and we had 207 cars come through. So thanks be to God that, you know, a few of those cars had one or two people, but most had three, four, even five, six, or seven people. And so just a wonderful opportunity to reach our community with the love and the life of Christ. And I, there are so many people that played a role in that, and so many of you that helped, and thank you all. But I especially want to recognize um, Tara and David and Jason, because they just did a huge task. Thank you, guys. And it's so wonderful to serve with a team that, that works together and um, has a heart for this church and for the community. So today is the final sermon in our three-sermon series, Mary, a Model of Joyful Surrender. In the two preceding weeks, we have been looking at some of the events recorded in Luke's gospel leading up to the birth of Jesus. We've been specific, especially focusing on Mary and her response to these events in which she, by God's grace, played a central role. We looked in Luke 139 through 45 two weeks ago at Mary's visit to her relative Elizabeth, who was also with child. We looked at that visit and what Elizabeth spoke prophetically regarding both Mary and especially the child that she was bearing. And then last week, we began to look at Mary's song, what we know is is known as the Magnificat, which was our gospel reading both last Sunday and today. And we looked at Mary's song in response to the words of Elizabeth. We'll continue doing that today. Last week, verses 46 through 49 of Mary's song, which we looked at, were very personal. And we talked about one person's praise, specifically Mary's praise, and how our praise was deeply personal and heartfelt. At the same time, her song expressed the hopes and longing of all of God's people. Now, the portion of Mary's song we're looking at specifically this morning expresses the hopes and longings of God's people in a more elaborate way because Mary moves from that which is personal in her words and she speaks now on behalf of everyone who fears the Lord. We can really think of Mary's song in two parts like the lens of a camera. Last week in verses 46 through 49, the lens was zoomed in on a very small area. It was very focused, a very narrow scope. But this week, the camera has panned back out for the broad or panoramic view of things. And the picture is much bigger and broader in application. And this broader application applies to the Jewish people in that day, to Old Testament Israel, in Mary's day, and it also includes you and me. Our purpose today is for us to more fully understand how the hopes and longing of God's people, both then and now, and throughout all of human history, are met 
and only satisfied through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who came into the world as a man. And so as we look at this theme today, our points that we see from this text are first, God's mercy given. Second, God's power displayed. And then finally, God's unchanging power. So let's begin by looking at God's mercy given in verse 50. Mary turns in her praise from speaking of God's holiness in verse 49, which I'll have a little bit more to say about in a moment, to proclaiming God's mercy in verse 50. Listen to verse 50 again with me. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Holiness, God's holiness, this Mary spoke of in verse 49, is an essential part of God's character, both in a moral sense and also in the sense that God is uniquely set apart. That is, in part, what holiness means, that God is set apart from all that he has created. He cannot be compared with anyone or anything in all of his creation because he is unique. And it's important that we come to grasp the significance of God's holiness. The 18th century American preacher of the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards said this, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute for no other attribute is truly lovely without this. God is holy. We must delight in the holiness of our God. But like God's holiness, his mercy is just as much an intrinsic part of who he is. It's an essential part of his character. And we may ask the question, what is mercy? I've heard mercy simply described from the human perspective as not getting what we deserve. And that does indeed in part describe the concept of God's mercy from a human perspective. But there's more to it as well. Because mercy in scripture is closely connected with the Hebrew word that is used time after time in the Old Testament, kesed. And the kesed, the concept that kesed conveys cannot be accurately translated with just one simple word in English. Kesed is the idea of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness, of God's loving kindness, And mercy that we look at here, the mercy that Mary sings of grows out of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness, his love or loving kindness toward those who are his. And that covenant-keeping faithfulness is not rooted in who we are or what we do, because like God's people down through all of the ages, we sin We rebel against God at times in our lives, but God has sworn by himself. And because God has sworn by himself and making covenant with his people, he will keep his promises. God's mercy grows out of his kessid, his faithful covenant keeping loving kindness. God's mercy is an essential part of his character, which those who are who are his experience as a reality because in his great love for us, in his great love for his people, God keeps his promises. 
Promises that go all the way back to the covenant he established with Abraham and Abraham's descendants in Genesis 15. And back even further to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The first prophetic promise of a Messiah, of a deliverer who would come. God's mercy extends to those who belong to him. As Mary says in verse 50, for those who fear him. Do you understand that if you're a God's child, you are to fear him? You say, what? What does that mean? Well, fear here doesn't speak of fright or terror. Rather, to fear God as his child is to rightly and fully recognize God's absolute rule and authority and submit our lives to that out of our great love for him as his redeemed children. The idea of fear here for the children of God is a sense of profound reverence and all for God and who he is that leads to a desire to reflect his character and walk in obedience to him. Mary fears God in this sense because she rightly acknowledges his holy and exalted position. We too must fear God in this sense, recognizing who he is in all of his greatness and submitting our lives to his rulership. The Anglican priest and hymn writer, John Newton captured it well in verse two of the hymn, amazing grace where he wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." The grace of God experienced as a reality in our lives teaches us to fear God in the biblical sense as his children, in all of his holiness, in all of his character, and yielding and submitting ourselves to his rule in our lives. At the same time, grace relieves that fear, that terror that comes from being outside of Christ and not knowing God's redemption. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. God's mercy extended to Mary and the people of God in her day. It was the experience of God's people and the generations before her. And it is the experience of the genuine people of God down through the ages to the present from generation to generation. And we, like Mary, can be absolutely sure of this rock-solid reality that God's mercy extends to those who fear him. Why can we be assured of that? Because God's word, the Bible, tells us this. And because God's character is unchanging. We, brothers and sisters, as new creations in Christ, are recipients of God's mercy given. Second, we have God's power displayed. One of the key ways God's mercy and favor are demonstrated as a real and tangible experience in the lives of God's people is through God acting on their or our behalf. Do you understand that God acts on your behalf? That God acts on your behalf as his redeemed child because he loves you and he has your and my best interest at heart. That God acts on behalf of his people, the church of Jesus Christ. To order things 
in a way that even in difficulties, he is working and fighting on our behalf and we are secure in his loving care. And there is no more powerful demonstration, no more poignant demonstration of the reality of God acting on our behalf than Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God coming into the world to redeem us. Look at verses 51 through 53 with me. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. These verses describe God's acts of mercy toward those who fear him, including Mary and ultimately each of us. And this is not just some vague concept or theory. When verse 51 says he has performed mighty deeds with his arms, it means that God demonstrates his limitless power in real and visible ways on behalf of his people. Listen to these verses from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out the midst, in the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Psalm 44, verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they, their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. And then finally, Psalm 89, verses 13 through 15. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Blessed are those who walk in the light of God's face. God displays his power and acts on behalf of those who are his, ultimately to bring the Messiah. He works on behalf of those in every generation who fear and reverence his holy name. But here in verses 51 through 53, we also see a contrast between those who are God's people, the people of God who have responded to God's offer of salvation and those who have not. And when people, and even when we as the church sometimes experience worldly success and gain worldly power, there is a very real spiritual risk. Because we risk those things becoming the ruler of our lives. We risk those things becoming the prime motivator in who we are and what we do rather than being conformed to the image of Christ and walking in God's holiness and striving to reflect and live into God's holy character. If we don't do that, if we allow these other things to take control, we will not accurately reflect who our Lord is. 
worldly power, worldly riches, worldly success heightens the risk of, of us being especially vulnerable to an, in, an ungodly sense of independence or self-sufficiency. As God's children, we are called to trust in him. Our sufficiency and our dependence and our supply is in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. And if we allow this ungodly sense of independence and self-sufficiency that we see all around us in the world, if we allow it to creep in, it can very quickly lead to an insensitivity toward God and the things of God. And it leads to a lack of awareness of every person's need for God's grace and his mercy in our lives. And we lose sight of that need in the lives of those we interact with. This is my need. This is your need daily. And such independence and self-sufficiency can also lead to an ungodly self-centeredness and insensitivity to human beings, our fellow human beings, that we fail to see people through the eyes of God, people that stand in need of God's grace and God's mercy and God's transforming power in their lives, just as we have experienced. Worldly success can do these things. The evangelist of the 19th century, D.L. Moody, put it this way. When a man thinks he has a good deal of strength and is self-confident, you may look for his downfall. It may be years before it comes to light, but it has already commenced. We see this all around us in the season leading up to Christmas as well. Now, I don't want to sound like a Scrooge. I'm not. Giving gifts is a wonderful and beautiful thing as we remember the gift of God in Christ to us. Celebrating, reveling, and rejoicing. Yes, when we come to Christmas, it will be a time of feasting. But we see materialism all around us as well that shifts the focus away from the true message and the true heart of God who calls us to trust in his grace and him as our all-sufficient one. Think of the advertisements. Who needs a Mercedes for Christmas? Who really gets a Mercedes for Christmas? And this sense of acquisitiveness and acquisition and desiring and trusting in and clinging to things of this world can very easily creep in at this time of year. And it's Satan's ploy to distract us and not just us as the people of God, but the whole culture from the truth and the reality of Christ the Savior coming into the world. Just as God acts on behalf of those who are his, he also acts against those who reject him, who trust in their own sufficiency and the false sufficiency of the things of this world. Sometimes he does that through direct action. Other times he does that simply by pulling his hand of protection and grace away and letting us experience the ends of our own actions. Everything Mary sings about in verses 51 through 53 are in the past tense in English. Why is that? From her perspective at that time, had they been accomplished? No, not yet. But Mary can sing as if they are already accomplished in a prophetic sense because they will be accomplished most certainly and they will be accomplished as she sings by the baby that she carries in her womb. 
They will be accomplished as, a rea- as the reality of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ breaks into human time and history in unparalleled and new ways through this babe. Because Jesus will bring ultimate victory to those who are gods, to those who fear God, to those he came to set at liberty and to redeem. Yes, the proud will be scouted. Rulers will be brought down from their thrones. But the humble, those who come to the foot of the cross, he will lift up. He fills the hungry, those who are spiritually hungry with good things. But the rich, specifically those who put their trust in the things of this world, will be sent away empty-handed. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the late great preacher, says it this way. Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Why? Because in Christ, the priorities of this world and the values of this world are stood on their head. For Israel under Roman oppression, the things of this world are stood on their head. For the people of God in every generation who suffer in worldly poverty, often because of obedience to the gospel, Jesus himself has, is, and will ultimately reverse the order of these things, replacing them with the values and the priorities of his kingdom, as Revelation eleven fifteen reminds us, as we sing so often during this season from the Hallelujah Chorus, as Handel quoted that verse, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. No matter what the world says, there is a day coming when this will be a reality in all of its fullness, and that will last for all of eternity. St. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's power is wonderfully and beautifully displayed as he acts on behalf of those who are his. And the most powerful and profound and poignant demonstration of this in all of time and history is what we celebrate in this coming season of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then finally, we've already talked about it quite a bit, but God's unchanging character in verses 54 through 55. And again, what is the basis of all of this? How do we know that God will vindicate those who fear him? We know this because he is a covenant keeping God. He demonstrates his loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping love to his people in the Old Testament, in Mary's day, and in every generation right down to the present. Verses 54 through 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Everyone who participates in God's covenant. In other words, Old Testament and New Testament believers. 
united through our Messiah, Jesus Christ, God, the son come in the flesh. All of us can be assured that God will remember to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants and to all of God's people forever, forever. As we conclude this season of Advent today and this week, let us remember that all that we wait on in expectation, all that we will be celebrating in the days to come, it's about God's mercy extended to us. And it is about God's power displayed as he has and continues to act on our behalf through Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, our savior. And it is about God's unchanging character. No matter what you're going through, no matter what challenges life brings your way, no matter what you may be going through, even in this season, we can count on God's unchanging character and that he fights for us and that he acts on our behalf because that action is rooted in his very nature, in his kessid, his faithful covenant, keeping kindness and love to those who are his. As we live into these promises, may the light of Christ in this season shine from us so that others can experience this reality of God's mercy empower an unchanging character for themselves as well. Let us pray. Father, how thankful we are that you are faithful and true and unchanging and that you have extended grace and mercy to us. Grace and mercy that flows from your very being, that flows from your nature. So Lord, renew us and our sense of dependence upon you and your grace daily and cleanse us from any sense of self-sufficiency or independence because Lord, we trust and rest in you and you alone, knowing that you act on our behalf. And Father, may we walk forward in obedience and in love with great confidence because we know that we are secure and rooted and your unchanging, covenant-keeping, loving-kindness toward us and to all whom you have redeemed. So, Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.